Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Please give me one more brief moment. I know I failed to perform the service I promised you in the city, and I have no right to ask anything further of you, but I'm remembering how delighted you were that day the coffee cup lady and raincoat man found each other again. You were so delighted and couldn't help showing it, so I know just how much it matters to you that people who love one another are brought together after many years. I know the son always wishes them well. Please consider Josie and Rick. They are still very young. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy. We are on the final episode of the Summer Book Club, where we have been reading Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguru. I always get excited when I'm near the end um, because I feel a sense of accomplishment when we've all read a book together and discussed it, and I love reading your comments, but also a sense of sadness because you have spent time with these characters and you've spent, we've spent time together reading this, um, and there's a, there's a bittersweetness that comes at the end of a book. And to discuss uh, part five with me today, I have one of my favorite people in the world to talk with about books, which is my sister, Sarah Clarkson. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much. You're one of my favorite people in the world, too. So I'm very happy to be here and talk about books. Yes, it'll be lovely. Um, We were both just talking about this book, and I don't think you'll mind me sharing this. Part of the reason that I chose it was that I got to the end of it and it made a big impression on me, but I, I wasn't sure but I didn't have conclusions about it. I didn't know how I felt. And as we kind of get towards the end of, of the book, um, I think, I think that's still a feeling that I, I have. Do you feel the same way? I do. I was, I was, as I was saying a few minutes ago, I feel less conclusive and more ambiguous about this book than I do about others. I Mm. I like it, but I'm not exactly sure how much or why or where where to file it within my system. Um, Mm. And some of the ones I've, I think I've read him before. I like his, I loved his remains of the day. And the mm-hmm. one that that leaves me with is just a deep yearning, truthful sadness. Mm-hmm. But with this one, it's very, um, there's kind of a tension that you have to dwell in in reading this one and kind of mm-hmm. figuring out what you think and what, how you're seeing the world through her eyes. And you no, know, I find it, it's, it's much, I find it a harder read than the other ones in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because in a way it ends with a happy ending but then also with a tinge of sadness and loneliness. Um, but before we get before we get to that, uh, why don't you tell people a bit about yourself and what you do and who you are? What I do and who I am. Um, oh, these are large existential questions. <laughs> they are. Sorry. I usually go for how do you spend your days? Because I think that's perhaps an easier one. I was like, wait, do I start with writer or mother or wife or, or human soul? No, sorry. Um, <laughs> what do you believe in the human heart? The individual spirit. Anyway, sorry, that was from the last chapter. <laughs> right, okay. Um, I am a writer, and I just moved back to Oxford with my husband, Thomas, who is an Anglican priest, and we now live in a real, genuine article vicarage with a big garden with a willow, and we have three adorable children that I chase most of the time um, around the garden and under the willow, and when I'm not doing that, I write books and occasional articles on beauty and theodicy and quiet, which is what the book I'm working on now, though that seems almost comical. People laugh when I tell them the quiet and they said, do you have any quiet? And I say, well, 
I'm seeking it, which is what the book is about. <laughs> mm. So that's what I do. And then, yes, that's how I spend my days writing, chasing children, reading many things to them and myself and looking at all the beauty of the world. And you also, you're, you're doing, um, what is it called? Your Patreon? I am indeed. I am doing, um, it's called the Book Girl Fellowship. And you can find me on Patreon. We do twice a month. Um, I do basically kind of a video uh, live kind of live video where we talk about we have one set book we read together and so we'll kind of so we've done things like middle march or enchanted april um last last month we did madeline ingles a circle of quiet and this month we're going for summer ease with rainbow valley by lucy Ma montgomery um, and then my other one of the month is usually an exploration of just some of the things i'm reading of late with myself or the children or what Thomas and I are discussing or what good articles I figured Plow magazine has figured quite a bit in my readings of, of late. So mm. that's good. Yeah, so I do that. I write a lot. I'm on Instagram occasionally when I remember to post. So yes. Everyone should read Sarah's things. It's always it's always very uh thought provoking, but also just beautiful and charming. Um and truly your vicarage is is novel-esque. You know, it I, I have fallen into an Elizabeth Gooch novel. You you have you have as as the um as the young people say you have manifested an Elizabeth Gooch life. <laughs> <laughs> I have didn't know it was possible to do so, but I have, and and I even it's uh, the other day someone said Sarah, are you ever going to write a novel? And I said, you know what? In this house, I feel like I might. There you it's go. That kind of house. It's Excellent. a story of a house. Yes. So so if you enjoy uh, this conversation with Sarah today about books, there are so many more conversations you could have with her on Instagram, Patreon, etc. Um, so I've been asking all of um, my guests this, but what are kind of some of the themes that have stood out to you in this book? What what kind of sticks with you? We both said that it's not necessarily that you have resolutions or, or kind of, yes. um, I don't remember the word you use. It's, it's a, it doesn't resolve neatly, but what are some of the themes that you've seen that have caught your eye? Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing, which I'm sure you all have already discussed in an earlier session, mm -hmm. is I think any novel or film that's exploring artificial intelligence is exploring what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, you look at this this whole thing, and I think often, as I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to wonder if Clara is, in a sense, more human than we are, um, mm -hmm. or more human than we are becoming in our technological mm -hmm. age. But I think because one of the things, lenses I look through is, um, I think something I've noticed in the novel, because I kind of studied one of my special topics of interest is just theodicy and how we understand God's goodness in the world. And that is so tied up with power and fear, mm -hmm. how people use power and how they, because mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things I've loved about studying it is understanding how God's use of power is a self-giving love. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting throughout this novel because I think that um, Clara aside, most of the characters are striving for mm -hmm. a self dominant dominating power they're trying to figure out ways to make themselves smarter they're literally risking their children's health in order to make them more powerful more capable um and yet you know with the mother's project of creating a josie that's not a josie you have to ask is there actually any love in this push mm -hmm. towards power it feels like each of them is trying to maintain and um, grasp what they desire mm -hmm. um at all any cost whereas then you have clara who is, who is by definition a servant, whose life is literally poured out for others. And, and she literally pours out her life almost in a, a liter literal way mm -hmm. for Josie. 
is offering. Um, and in her, you see kind of the only, what, what I would maybe say is more divine idea of power, which is mm -hmm. self-gift, is pouring out my life and myself in service or love for another. And then the fruitfulness and the relationship and the creativity that comes from that. That's a really interesting aspect, I think, of the book. But I think, yeah, I think that, um, I think the way Josie sees the world and the way it becomes fragmented for her mm. is really interesting. I was reading, I can't remember where I was reading it. I, read, I think it might've been a really good Atlantic um, article on, on Clara and the Sun. And it said that, you know, humans see through a glass darkly. And there's a sense in which we share her, her kind of- Fragmentation. Fragmentation of vision. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, you know, how may we bring that to a wholeness of vision in ourselves? Anyway, themes to start, there's a few thoughts. So something that came up as you were saying that I hadn't thought about before is one of the like key when when uh, Ishiguro describes the book and in interviews, he says it's about a robot who's created to prevent loneliness in teenagers. That's how he always starts. And so one of the themes that goes throughout the whole book is loneliness. But I was thinking about that with that theme of power, because I think that um when you live a life that's only in pursuit of power, it's a very, it's a lonely thing, right? Because it makes you fearful again of other people come be more powerful or more yeah, successful. Because everything is a threat. Everything is, um, it's a, yeah. Um, whereas, and I think you see that in many of the characters and oftentimes I think also the characters seem to seek power precisely because they feel increasingly like they have none, right. You know, they're, they're in this society where, um, lots of people have lost their jobs to robots. So they're all, they don't have economic power. They are in a society where there's this stark division between children who've been raised and children who haven't. And there's even this kind of dark uh, sense of power of Rick over Clara or not over Josie in the sense that even though he wasn't raised, he's physically capable. So there's this, there's this, and, and the ways that that actually really, that pursuit of power, but also that sense of powerlessness is yeah. connected to that loneliness. Um, loneliness. It reminds me of like, and I always like I say this incorrectly, it's the incurvatus in se, right? Of the, mm -hmm. of the self that's turned in upon itself, which is kind of mm -hmm. the definition of original sin. And I was thinking about that throughout the book about how these are selves turned in upon themselves, becoming ever mm -hmm. more isolated and lonely and mm -hmm. their, their shells of kind of, yeah, they, of trying to, keep and create advantage in a system and a society which is increasingly threatening them and their world. Um, and I can't, is it her, her uh, Josie's father, um, has he joined? I can think of his name. Yeah, he's, he's joined, he's joined some kind of, the, somebody calls it a fascist at some point. And you're like, is it fascist? Again, kind of like the, the, the loneliness by trying to reach for community, which yeah. is another question, kind of a, hmm, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. interesting. And I, and the mother too is an interesting one, right? Because she literally, you know, Joe or Clara talks about how, you know, the great extents that human will, humans will go to, to avoid loneliness. And the mother tries, like when you talk about exertions of powers, this desire to create, you know, a replacement Josie um, yeah. is like, it's the attempt to use her power, whatever power she has, whether that's, you know, kind of financial that she can pay for this guy to keep herself from being lonely. But then it's this great tragedy because it's the, it's the showing that you can't, you power cannot create love power, power cannot solve loneliness. Yeah. And, and loneliness can only be healed 
by a free-willed other who relates to you out of their freedom and self-gift. And, yeah. you know, the Josie she's creating is not a free Josie. It's not a, a real love lover in any sense. It is, it is an extension of herself. Um, it's a and, grief doll. Um, very well, it is a bereavement doll, as they said. And yeah. as interesting as that, I mean, I've, I recently was writing about, sorry, to bring this in, but um, about Middlemarch and analyzing its loves and how one of the things I was really struck by was the way that many marriages fail based on the fact that each loved the other for what they loved in themselves, that it was ultimately mm -hmm. a loving of self rather than an other. And, you know, no marriage, no, nor childbearing, nor friendship can flourish when what you ultimately love is yourself and the other. You have to truly love the other in all their independence and wildness and risk. Mm. You know, that's part of it. I think there. I think this is a novel. Loneliness and fear are very tied up, and I think mm. people are more lonely in order to protect themselves against fear. Um, mm. I think that must be part of it. Yeah. Yes. Kind of fear and risk aversion. But this is a this chapter in particular is uh, is kind of a I think I would describe it as a you catastrophe of a chapter, right? You know, indeed. I think because I think it is uh, because so you catastrophe was it? Yeah, you catastrophe being yeah the sudden turn towards joy, and it's that it's you know Tolkien famously uses it. It's kind of the it's the opposite of a catastrophe. It's the opposite of a die catastrophe, a bad thing. It's you expect it to go. It's the opposite of something suddenly going very terribly. It's something suddenly turning towards good. Very well, good. And, <laughs> and it's, I think it's interesting because it plays on that in us as readers, both of this book in particular, but then also if you've read any of other, any of Ishiguru's other things, um, he loves the gut punch. He loves the sucker punch. You know what I mean? He loves, he loves to have you read and then be like, oh, ouch, my feelings, you know? And, yeah. and, and also when you're reading this book, you, we were talking before about how everybody so many of the reviews are like Clara thinks um, Clara mistakenly believes you know whatever. It's so um, interesting. Yeah, but that, then that the son healed the um, yeah the homeless man. She she mistakenly believes at the opening of the novel, and then they go on with this whole review, and I'm like, wait, 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 wait. How do you know? What if she wasn't mistaken? This is a not, and the novel asks allows us to ask that question. We are never yeah. told with Clara's belief in the son. We've never told that that's incorrect. Yeah. We're just presented with her actions and the actions of the humans in light of their beliefs. Yeah. And I don't know that this, this chapter like closes the, it, I don't know that it goes, yes, absolutely. The sun did heal her. But what it does is rather than closing that question down, it opens the door even more widely and says, what if Clara was right? Um, yes. It's a yeah. very Lewis way of seeing it. Like if he has his, you know, some, some definitions of things are standing apart from the beam and you're describing them and you can analyze exactly what happened. And others are you stand in the light of the beam and you enjoy the truth that you see from the inside of it. And Clara in that sense is a, we just have to stand literally in the light of the sun with her and yeah. see what happens. Exactly. Okay, so there's two kind of scenes I wanna talk about in this chapter, which is very brief. It's not a very long chapter. Um, one is her, when she goes, um, she asks Rick to take her to the sun. And then the other one is, of course, kind of this moment when uh, the son seems to possibly heal Josie. Um, yeah. So, did you have any? Did you have any thoughts about uh, the scene where the son, where she goes to see the son again? 
I, I have thoughts about it, so I can start if you want me to start. Why don't you start? Off. So um, I guess kind of one of the main things about this scene um, in our last podcast, um, King said to look out for grace. And so we have these two different moments when Clara uh, makes this appeal to the son. And in the first appeal, she says, you know, I'll do whatever I need to heal Josie. And, um, and she, she thinks that she learns in this encounter that the son wants her to destroy the Kudings machine, but she goes and she quite literally pours out kind of her lifeblood to, you know, to, to do this. And, um, but in this one, she, she comes to the son and she realizes that her own attempts to like wipe out the unhealth of her own society are futile, that she as her own little robot self cannot destroy all the Kooting's machines, you know, in her world so sweet and innocently small. Um, so she begins to appeal to the sun instead of from this posture of, I will do X so that you will do, give me, you know, Y. She just, yeah. she begins to appeal in the opening passage that I read to this, to the very nature of the sun, that it is this, that she noticed that the sun enjoyed um, healing and that that's a part of the sun's nature. You know, and that, so she's not doing a quid pro quo. She's seeing, she's asking the son to do something um, and out of, out of his goodness, out of his kindness. And it's even funny because the kind of bargaining chip that she has at this point is the love between Josie and Rick. Um, and she says, and no. she thinks of that as a bargaining chip because, and because it's not a bargaining chip to anybody else in the story. No, so she's feeling to the son as as being outside of kind of the tit for tat system of which all the other humans are part of because Josie's yeah. and Rick's love doesn't mean much to the yeah the other yeah in the story. but it means but because she is this because she's so focused on loneliness and love it's really important to her but what's interesting is that once you flip to like you know the first page of this part six um Josie and Rick don't end up together so there's this sense that whatever happens even even that bargaining chip of the love between Josie and Rick, if the son will give his special help, it's, yeah. it's this, it's a gift of love. It's a free gift. And in a way, if you think about the son as her character of God, the kind of the lived theology that Clara is, is encountering is that nothing she can do will merit the son's help. That it's about the son being good and loving. Well, and it's interesting because I think in this passage, even as she's walking there, I think you see her, her the turned perception she has of the world as she's approaching the sun. It's, she she says as she's accustomed to riding on Rick's grass uh, back, the grass was more yellow on our than on our previous journey, and it was also more soft and yielding. And even the clouds of evening insects broke kindly against my face. So there's already this sense of she's walking into a gentler place. And then as she feels fearful, she says, "But then I remembered his great kindness." And mm -hmm. I think that there's almost like a biblical language that she's using. Um, as she begins to, and I love, oh, to me, there is like almost a mystical element. Is she, is, is she having a mystical encounter? And she begins to form words inside of herself, which sounds mm -hmm. as much like what I would describe prayer as anything mm -hmm. I've, I've encountered before. But she says, I've never forgotten how kind the son can be if only he would show his great compassion to, Zo to Josie. To, those are very biblical terms, you know, his great yeah. kindness, compassion, um, so I completely agree. I think that she's coming, almost coming into the presence of, and then it's very hard to escape that in this in this passage, she's 
basically stepping into divine presence and asking for something from from a presence she has come to believe is benevolent. Very much like Piranesi in that sense, in that mm -hmm. he's always saying the house is so kind and good. And in this, she's saying, but the sun is so kind. And so mm -hmm. there's a sense in which both those characters were able to move with love and compassion in worlds where the agents around them were self-seeking because they believed in the benevolence of a greater force that cared for them um, yeah. and freed them then to act in love and faith, which and I think is really interesting. Yeah, and it frees them because if there is this benevolent force that's so much greater than all the Kooting's machines in the world, then you yeah. you don't have to be as afraid. You don't you can ask for the power of the sun rather than your own power. You don't have to do this kind of bargaining chip. Um, something else. This is this may be this may really be um, making mountains out of molehills. However, when she goes and and she says the sh the sun, so my deep wish now is the sun will show his great kindness once more. She then has she has these little visions while she's in the in the presence of the sun. Yeah. And she has a vision, she has a vision of sheep, which um, you know, it's kind of funny. It's kind of a sad vision. She's not being able to eat the grass. But sheep are also a deeply um biblical, both from, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, saying that the that the shepherd will take care of us, but also the yeah. sense of Jesus being a sheep. That now I know that's that might be a bit out there, but I did notice that this reading this time around, it kind of seems oddly out of place. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it, I find that odd too. And also, though, that the sheep are now suspended slightly above the ground. What does that mean? Does that mean they're not? It's it's a uh, it is a very enigmatic passage. But I completely agree. And I don't think Ishiguro is a novelist who will use imagery lightly, randomly. Yeah, randomly. I think he is. I think he's using things to evoke things in his readers that he knows inhabit all of our imaginations, um, mm. and yes. he's drawing on that. It's interesting too the way that um, these these random little visions she has during this. There's a sense in which it's almost as if there's kind of a a bigger idea going on in the sense of, you know, we know that with Clara that when she's confused or or distressed, her vision fragments, mm -hmm. and there's a sense in which it's almost as if on a larger scale, all of her larger vision is fragmented by her incapacity to figure out. Mm. you know Josie and her illness and but in the presence of the sun all the fragments are brought are together there. and she she doesn't know how to it says she doesn't she keeps trying to turn away from them but this is I think what we do in prayer very much it's this all the fragments of our lives are there and we don't know how to make a whole of the fragments but mm. as she allows the words to keep growing this plea please be compassionate please show your kindness um, and then I think it's so interesting when she finds the son himself still in the barn through the reflection, um, that kind of this unexpected graciousness of his presence and that uh, this, this passage where at the end where she says she looks on the glass and she sees the son's face and she says, although his face on the outermost glass was forbidding and aloof, the one immediate behind it was even more unfriendly. The two beyond were softer and kinder. And though it was hard to see much of them, uh, of the other sheets on account of their being further back, I couldn't help estimating that these faces would have humorous and kind expressions. Mm -hmm. In any case, whatever the nature of the images on each glass sheet, as I looked at them collectively, the effect was of a single face, but with a variety of outlines and emotions, um, so that even the sun himself is resolving, in a sense, into this mm -hmm. presence that is enigmatic, but she trusts. Benevolent. Yeah. Benevolent. Um, so... Who is the author who says there's three prayers? Elizabeth Googe, of course. And she's, what are the three prayers? 
um, into thy hands, mm -hmm. thee I adore, and mm -hmm. Lord have mercy. So, which I've heard otherwise, otherwise have been, you know, thank you, or the sense of praising or giving thanksgiving. Um, ask, wait, into thy hands. So it's, it's basically it's repentance, in. petition, and praise, right? And yes, I please. thought it was interesting that she ends on, she, the last thing she says to the son is, thank you for receiving me again. Thanksgiving yeah. or worship. I'm sorry I wasn't able to perform the service. I promised to you, you know, um, repentance. Please consider my my request. Uh, Into that hands. Yeah, it's a very it's her very simple, her very simple petition. Breath prayers, breath prayers of Clara. So I think this is a good point for us to transition into kind of the second act of this um, of this chapter, which is. Josie's kind of decline and the relational chaos that causes between everyone. And then uh, what, what is apparently the sudden uh, and special help of the sun. Uh, so do you have any initial thoughts, comments, things you want to note about this section? Well, I mean, I think it's kind of the sort of stuff we can discuss in the going, but I am wondering about something I read at the beginning of the book that has to do with the conversation Rick and Josie's mother have, um, mm. but we can address that when we get to it, or I can tell you what I think now to you. Well, let's start with it now, because I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I was thinking about how the sun is about to come and shed his special light, but there's a sense that the light is also revealing what is true about their relationships. So tell me what you tell. So, yeah. So to set this up, basically Josie well, starts getting worse and worse, and then there's lots of arguments with the doctor. And then we have the scene in which Josie's mother and Rick have this very difficult conversation. Well, it's interesting because, and I, I hate to say, I'm literally processing this as we're talking. So this may come out, come out very fake, but we'll see what happens. I'm just realizing that when um, the darkness is what is described with the mother as she goes to the kitchen to have this conversation that will be revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Rick, it says the kitchen appeared different because of the darkened sky and the mm -hmm. mother hadn't switched in any on any lights. And so we're this is the conversation that immediately precedes the son's literal arrival. So it's actual visible physical arrival in the house. But there is a sense in which I'm thinking about in the opening of the book when there's the um the boy AI who is teasing Clara about stealing all the sunlight and he's like don't worry Clara, but don't worry Clara there's there's ways the sun can reach you even when you're not by the window and so mm -hmm. there's this idea and you don't have to worry the sun will find you to recharge you there's enough sun to go around and there's a sense in which at first we kind of I mean she's very threatening to Rick she is she is just the self turned put upon the show all can she can see is is her own fallen world her own fear her own loneliness her own kind of jealousy of his mm -hmm basically mm. being alive. I mean, what a threatening conversation for a mother to have with a teenage kid. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. um, but then it, she says, and, and then when he's, it, it's interesting when she, he says, Mrs. Arthur, I have something I'm supposed to tell you. And it says her eyes became large and filled with fear. And then of course, there's this message that is, I think as we've spoken about, well, I mean, it's a message of profound grace. Mm. It's, it is love. It is unconditional love that appears from a human for one of the first mm -hmm. times in the story. Um, and from a child 
to an adult. So it is very, but it's interesting how it's almost as if, um, and it's at that moment, the mother stared expressionlessly at Rick after he says this. And that's when Clara spots something. And it's mm -hmm. almost as if that message of love and grace was the instigating moment for the arrival of the son, or is it is the first kind of sign of the sun's grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that there's a sense in which we see the sun breaking in. There's a there's a passage in a novel I really love called um by Michael O'Brien called um Island of the World. And it's it's about it's a long story about faith and it's about a young boy and Sorry, I'm not going to read the whole story, but basically there's a moment when a little boy is in prison and he's with an older man and they can't see any light coming in through the windows. And mm -hmm. and um, he's watching this, this, the prison bars, a few prison bars of light come down and there's a man in chains next to him who basically says, when the light can't find a way through the window, the, the light finds a way to come within yourself in your own heart. Mm -hmm. you, you're never without of the reach, outside mm -hmm. the reach of light. And in that sense, I think the light is reaching even when there's no window here. And then the arrival comes, but um, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'm processing. No, that's amazing. But I hadn't noticed that, but I think you're, I think you're right. And I think, so one of the things that's interesting about this book is that I think Clara sees herself as, as her whole purpose in life is to heal or to prevent loneliness. Right. And, yes. but she also kind of secondarily comes to see her mission as keeping Josie from dying. And it's easy to think of this moment with the son as being the moment that heals Josie's illness. But I think looking at, and it's interesting that you pointed that out because I was going to say that I think that a part of this is that it's healing not only her sickness, but it's beginning to undo some of the loneliness. And I think, I think yeah. that it makes sense that it's right here because, you know, we're talking about power and the attempt to, to exert power um, and then, and then the idea of the thing is grace is opposite to that, right? Grace actually is very upsetting on some level to those of us yeah. who want to be in power. Makes me think of Javert and, um, and Les Mis, which I did a little project a while ago that he, when he experiences grace, it's so unsettling to him that in the story, he literally commits suicide because he'd rather be in control of his own narrative um, than to have grace and love yeah. shown to you because grace and love shows you that actually there's nothing you could do to deserve it. There's nothing you can do to, um, to obtain it. You can't manipulate it. Love and grace by their very nature are a gift. And, um, yeah. okay. Yes. Keep going. Yeah, go ahead. Um, no, no, go ahead. Yeah, but I was to say is basically Rick's message to the mother is you are not in control. You have ruined everything because she has, and you're still loved. And what's the first word she says after hearing it? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> what a message. And I think that's fascinating, even that that's a message, as if that's the whole story that is being brought. And I'm sitting here thinking about how in scripture, God is, Jesus is described as God with us. Mm. Um, there is a, there, I do think that part of the gospel or some message, as the mother might say, is the cures is a healing of our existential isolation. You you are no longer mm -hmm. cut off from. Yeah. And it, this reminds the whole thing. At the time I was reading this, today, I was reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis in his um, um, Great Divorce. Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. I know. Surprised by Joy when he's when he's describing his his very gradual um, conversion. And one of the things he says is that um, he he began to 
his mind be. What I did not notice was that I had passed an important milestone. Up, up till now, my thoughts had been centrifugal. Now the centripetal movement had begun. So, you know, up until then, his his thoughts had been away from a central point of meaning or, mm-hmm. and now they had begun to come into a point of, of seeing all things as connected. And mm-hmm. um, a little later in that passage, I think he begins to realize that he could not make himself, that he is, mm-hmm. he is a made has to have reference to a centered one. He, I think he said, where, where does he say, hold on, he says he anchors, um, sorry, I'm gonna find it. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, it's, we have to have a root in the absolute with, mm-hmm. in order for us to be able to utter reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sense in which I think in this passage, in that message that Rick brings, and then in the arrival of the sun, there's, a different movement of thought because mm-hmm. the characters are standing in the light of a grace they couldn't evoke or conjure by themselves and are receiving a fullness that is it is the outcry of their whole beings mm-hmm. but that they could never have made for themselves alone yeah i love that um after literally directly after the mother says jesus that's some message uh Clara almost shouts, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the sun is coming out. And the mother who has just experienced this kind of moment of grace still doesn't recognize what's happening and says, what's wrong with you, honey? You know, um, but that, that, that kind of triggers this, this moment. And she allows, (laughs) she allows the patterns of the sun, you know, which again is the sense that the sun is consistent, that the sun is creates this world that is meaningful and and that she can count on the sun's generosity because the nature of the sun also it's funny when melania housekeeper says damn sun damn sun go away and no no we must open them open everything we must let the sun do his best and it's just this complete and utter trust in the sun's goodness and generosity and i think too because of Clara's faith, in this moment, she's confident enough to say, as an artificial intelligence who's supposed to only serve to say, stop, you have to let the sun in. There's a there's a fearlessness that comes mm. with the confidence of, of love. Healing. Yeah. Also, so something else that I notice is that when you, so you, you get this whole description, and then once everything is pulled back and they look at Josie, it says, the sun was illuminating her and the entire bed in a ferocious half disc of orange and the mother standing close to it. Yes. There's the sense that it's not just Josie who's being healed, it's the mother, I you know? I completely agree. Yes, and any healing reaches out from it. And it's really interesting, um, <laughs> you'll laugh at this. So I have a children's Bible that every night my children get to choose, they get to take turns choosing at this point in life, the, the Bible story they want to leave. And it's a very limited number of stories. And Samuel has chosen the raising of Jairus' daughter every night for the last two weeks. When it's I'm very familiar with the raising of Jairus' daughter. Um, but all that to say, this this passage reminds me a little bit like that when the mother comes close and she's like, you you look a little better. And um, she's just like, take it easy. And then she offers her something to drink. And it just reminds me of she's saying, offer this girl something to drink. And the yeah. mother's like, take it slowly. But there's a little bit of a resurrection scene here. She has been literally brought back to life. And I yeah. think we're supposed to see her as standing in the light of a miracle, you know, yeah. Lillian this morning at breakfast. What is a miracle, Mama? So oh. I think we're being asked to consider the same ourselves. Yes, 
And then it's interesting because so she does that. She that is true. That's very like the gyrus, you know, bring her something to drink, something to eat. But then it ends on this funny note. Let's assume nothing, the mother said. We have to take this one step at a time. So we're left having just witnessed what is apparently a miracle, but with this, with this uh, instruction by the mother who's just been healed, although she almost doesn't seem to realize it, um, with her instruction to assume nothing. So Sarah, I feel like we've kind of showed well, our hand. Okay, it, it is a, a huge change from her who has tried to control everything. Let yes. us assume nothing and take this one step at a time you know, step-by-step into this new life. It's a different way. It is a different way of being. It's a way of assuming maybe there is something beyond what I have accounted for. As as Clara has put it earlier in the story, um, uh, there is a a special help that the adults have not thought of. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I underlined that when I read it. Yeah, no, but it's beautiful. So perhaps this is, I suppose we've already showed our hands, but do you think that we have witnessed a miracle? I think the book allows us to believe we have, if we so choose. I think what's what's interesting about this book is it doesn't, throughout the book, we're told what the humans think is not miraculous. That this, the, mm. you know, the, There's a sense in which the world in which the humans are moving is very, um, there is no belief. There is no mm. divine. And that's even, you have the, the um, I can't think of the artist's name, who says oh, to the mother, that's the old generation, you have to get rid of this idea that there's something eternal and untouchable in each of us, basically. And I think we're allowed to, we're, we're very familiar with it. And in many ways, those humans run the story. But I think we're allowed to wonder if Clara is right. And if this mm-hmm. artificial intelligence that has been created to companion a lonely humanity is actually tapping into something that that humanity has forgotten. And that is the cause of their ultimate loneliness because mm-hmm. i think we can ask was it a, was it the son who raised mm-hmm. the um, the homeless man was it the son so i i i do think the son healed clara um and i think that one of the things we are meant to take from this is we are we see because of our capacity to hope and i think hope is sometimes the term used mm-hmm. in the book in a sense to suggest a kind of faith. Clara is constantly saying, I believe there is still reason to hope, but you can almost hear her very even robotic voice saying it, but she's saying, for you have lost the capacity to believe in something more, a help beyond your imagination. I still believe there is cause to hope. And mm. I think that that is in this scene with Clara, I would say, I do believe there is cause to hope. And then and I think the novel very gently and very subtly leaves us, I mean, it leaves us in tension, but I think we are allowed to say, I stand with Clara. Like Clara, it kind of throws the, throws the, um, the curtains open and leaves us with the possibility of the ceiling. Yeah. Very much so. It's, yeah. um, I love, there's a, I can't, I'm quoting it badly, but it's somewhere in Rowan Williams' book, Williams book on Dostoevsky, um, Language, Faith, and Fiction. He says that incarnational characters, and again, I'm paraphrasing, I don't think he would quote this exactly, but basically incarnational characters are those that when you stand in their presence, the horizons change. You can see mm-hmm. the horizon in a different way. And I think when we stand with Clara, the horizons of the possible change. Mm, it's beautiful. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't prepare you for. So if you need to have a few moments to think, you can do that and I can edit it out. Um, but if knowing that you are, as the book you wrote a few years ago, the book girl, though I would say um, the lady of literature, that could be your follow-up. Um, 
if people enjoyed this book or they were intrigued by some of the ideas in it, or they liked the feel of it, where, what other kind of books, what other books would you direct them to? So like, I think that this has a very similar feel in some ways to Piranesi, which, which I read last time. I, I, I think it has a very, I probably like Piranesi better to be totally honest. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think people would really enjoy his, um, Ishiguro's The the Buried Giant, which was his novel before this one, asking some similar questions and similarly, you know, leaves you in the tension, but really, really good stuff. Um, let me think about this. I don't feel like this is quite the same because it's, this is, this is kind of a science fiction-y book where you're kind of, everything's ambiguous, but um, I do think The Elegance of the Hedgehog, which is kind of a, a discussion it's much more it's much more um accessible in that sense discussion mm -hmm. of philosophy and love but i think that there's some similar you know the very very intelligent and precocious characters discussing the meaning of life but mm -hmm. then off guard by the way love unravels everything um mm. yes but i'm that's I'm, I'm trying to think of i'm really bad at off the cuff well i think pure people Pure Nazi, Elegance the Hedgehog, and a Faith in Fiction, perhaps by Ron Williams. There you go. Well, and that's that's not a that's not a um, fiction words. That's not a fiction, but it's a good one. It's very dense, though. Um, is very good and very. Dense. Be forewarned. <laughs> oh well, thank you, thank you as ever for joining me on the podcast. It has been a pleasure. one more thing. The son was very kind to me. He was always kind to me from the start. But when I was with Josie, once, he was particularly kind. I wanted manager to know. Well, friends, we are finally reaching into the very last section of Clara and the Sun. It has been such a pleasure to read this with you all. Um, and it will be a sadness to close this chapter of this book. I can hardly um, believe that this is the fifth year in a row uh, that I've gotten to host these summer book clubs. And I, I shudder to think next year that the tradition will be closer to a decade than not. Um, I've really loved getting to read this book with you all. And to close off this um, this book, I want to just offer some reflections and tidy up some things as we've reached this final part, but then end with three questions. But before I do that, I did want to say that um, if you're curious about what the future is for the podcast, I will be taking a short break um, before I get back to podcasting once again. It's been kind of an interesting year. Uh, I finished my PhD last November, and for those of you who listened for a long time, you might know that I started this podcast kind of as a project, uh, a, a passion project in tandem with my PhD. And then after starting my job at Plow last year, it's been interesting to kind of figure out what this podcast would look like, um, what my writing and Patreon would look like, and how I can kind of merge 
what I'm writing, what I'm researching um, with, with the podcast, because it's something I really want to keep going. So I have some exciting news up my sleeve um, about a project that I'm going to start probably around November 1st. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I want to plant in your mind that it is going to happen and to keep your eyes peeled and to know that I will keep the podcast going. I'm kind of shifting to a new season of what that will look like. And I'm excited to share that with you guys um, when the time comes. So keep your eyes peeled, know that that's coming, and uh, I'll probably do an announcement on the podcast and also on social media. So keep your eyes peeled for that new project coming around November, um, but I'll have more to say soon. So without further ado, let's dive into this kind of last um, chapter of Claire and the Sun, this last part. It's an interesting, it's an interesting section. And in a way, it's almost anticlimactic, right? We we see life after this miracle that the sun seems to have done. And um, and in a strange way, life becomes very normal. Um, you know, Clara goes on, um, kind of becomes obsolete in some ways. It's kind of a, a planned obsolescence, as they describe it. Um, in that as, as Josie gains health and gets stronger and gets older, she gets more competent. And Clara finds herself kind of waning into the background. But in a way, there's a, there's a goodness in this, right? Because it means that Josie has matured, that she's grown up, that she is no longer lonely um, without Clara. But there's also a sadness because we have grown so attached to Clara. Um, and, and so we feel this kind of sadness that she is, is set to the side. Um, and I think that's actually one of the questions that, you know, Ishiguro is exploring with us. You know, last week, Michael talked about our relationship to objects. And one of the things he's asking is, if we created a robot like this, how would we think about the time when we set it aside? Um, but the moral of the story is that Josie um, becomes better. She goes to college. And um, there's this moment where, uh, where the... Um, the portrait maker, Mr. Capaldi, uh, comes and basically asks to use her. It's, it almost sounds to me like they're putting these kinds of robots out of use, or perhaps that they're trying to figure out what to do with the robots once they've been used, much like an iPhone, right? Once you have an old iPhone, it's no longer used. And Mr. Capaldi wants to take her part and, and use, you know, go inside her black box. Basically, um, um, what's the word I want? Um, vivisector, you know, go inside and figure out what's inside. But the mother is really resistant to this. And she says that she deserves a slow fade. And something that I found interesting about that phrase is there's a there's a sense in which the mother is is advocating for Clara being allowed to die something like a human, right? A slow fade. That's how we would describe most people's deaths. Most people don't die, die traumatically. They they fade slowly. That's a, that's a good death, you know, to die of old age, to fade slowly. And there's a sense in which her insistence on allowing Clara to fade is kind of a mercy or a grace. She's treating her more like a human. Because I think that one of the things we see in this chapter is that there's been all this anxiety about if Josie would die or not. There's been the anxiety about if she would change from Rick. And then suddenly in this chapter, she does, right? The first thing that it says is that she changed into an adult. That's like the opening opening line, right? And I think that the reason he does that is because there's a sense that for for Josie to mature, she does need to change, right? And and all these and and that 
there's this sense in which both Rick and the mother wanted her to stay the same, but that the wholeness was her actually being allowed to change. And the thing about change is that it reminds us of death, right? The whole point of trying to make Josie into this, um, this AF that the mother could keep was to keep her as she was. Um, one of you listeners, Emma, noted the fact that uh, there couldn't have been, you know, once you had a, a doll, there couldn't have been change in her, right? She would have permanently been a teenager. She couldn't have progressed into a human. She wouldn't have had the hormones. They would have had to build a totally new kind of robot. So there's a sense that before they were trying to keep Josie from changing, but then in this healing, she does change. She becomes an adult. But change is connected with death, right? In our experience, um, the life cycle of being growing from a child into an adolescent, into an adult, into an elderly person, being connected to that, cha- to that chain of change is being connected to death, and that's a part of what it is to be human. So in a weird way, the mother kind of... Um, advocating for Clara not being vivisected, not being taken apart, put back together, put in a a thing, is she's almost kind of advocating for her to be treated more like a human. Which gets back to this this question of kind of what is is a human, what is humanity? So it seems that um, she's eventually basically retired to this yard, which in a way seems quite bleak to us, right? Because it's basically just, it sounds kind of like a a rubbish dump for, for robots. But Clara finds it quite um, peaceful in a way because she can see the sun in all of his movements and she can sit and go through all of her memories. And there she meets her, um, she meets the manager. And um, someone was confused about if she is meeting the manager. Yes, I think she actually is meeting the manager, the manager who has taken care of all of these robots. We don't know if perhaps the manager was a robot. I think the manager is a human, but she comes and and looks at all of the AFs that she's taking care of. And Clara, I think we feel wistful about this chapter, but I'm not sure that Clara does. I think there's a sense in which Clara has accomplished her purpose and she sees the son as having been kind to her. And um, we end kind of in this ambiguous place of the human walking away from her, right? The very last line is um, about the manager and it says she continued to walk away and I think it's interesting to think about is this a is this a lonesome line is is Clara lonely Um, or is it just a description of what would inevitably happen when humans create a machine that's not a human that eventually will will go into its slow fade that's that's not so different from you know an iPhone 4 right that was many many generations ago um, so that's, those are some, that's kind of the overall what happens in this chapter, right? We, we see that, um, as Sarah and I talked about before, um, Josie is healed. She does go forward. And I love the fact that Rick connects this to the sun. He thinks that maybe there is something to Clara's sense of the sun having healed her, though he can't quite put his finger on it. And I also love the sense that, uh, there's this idea that the, the robots, the AFs kind of have this inherent um, superstition. So having reached this point, um, I want to end with kind of three questions because I think that one of the things that Ishiguro does well with his books is that he always, he never wants to leave you totally sure about what has happened, right? Kind of one of the things he does is he, he likes to twist your guts and then leave you aching for more and, and feeling very alive, very human and very unresolved. 
So I want to um, end by by asking three questions because I think that he kind of he doesn't give us answers. He gives us three questions to ponder. One is is the question that's at the center of this book, and that is what is the human heart? You know, the whole kind of uh, central tension of the story has really been around um, the question of of putting off grief through the specific instantiation of trying to make a, basically a continued Josie. Um, and so with that, there's this question of what is the human heart? Is there something distinctive in human nature that can't be replicated in technology? And I think that there are many kind of answers that we could explore to this. And I want to talk about two, um, though I don't think it's totally inconclusively answered. One is that the human heart is lonely. And of course, Clara, Clara sees this because her whole purpose in life is to keep humans from being lonely. But the answer that Clara seems to, to, to have to this, what, what are humans? What is the human heart? Um, what's distinctive about human nature? One of the distinctive things about human nature is that we're lonely, that we go to great lengths to avoid our loneliness, to try to soothe it. And why are we lonely? Um, in one of the interviews uh, that I watched in preparing for this, uh, Ishiguru says basically that he thinks that one of the distinctive things about humans is that we're so complex, we're this combination of personality and thought and will and experience um, that we carry through time, and that, that that the completely unique nature of both what is inherent and what is experienced in each human being is a part of what makes us unique. But that in being unique, because each of us are so distinctive, we are lonely. That the very thing that makes us human, that makes us different than a robot, that makes us unreplicable, is also what makes us lonely because we're so complex that no one, even the person who loves us most, can ever get deeply inside of us and know who we are. And in a way, I think we're meant to compare this to Clara. You know, we talked about this last week in the episode with Dr. Lung and Dr. Burdett, right? The idea that uh, Clara is simple in a way. She has quite a simple worldview. And in that way, she can be understood in a way that humans can't. And so she's less lonely. I think that we're not meant to feel, I don't think, that she's lonely in, in the junkyard, right? There's a sense that she is, she has fulfilled her purpose. So I think one of the questions to what, one of the answers to the question of what is the human heart is that the human heart is lonely. Um, that we we have this desire for connection, but this distinctiveness that makes us both unrepeatable, um, but also lonely. But I think one of the other answers to the question of what is the human heart? The human heart is, is loving. In this final chapter, one of the things that Clara says is that she thinks that the, um, that Josie could never be totally replica replicated by her precisely because the love in each human heart for Josie was so distinctive that they never could have transferred it from Josie to her. And so one of the things about the human heart is that we are lonely, but we have this in inherent desire to connect and to love one another. And one of the things I love about this book is that you see all these examples of people who are kind of trying and failing at love, but I don't think that you can say that, that none of the characters are trying, that are they're purely selfish. I think there's a sense that they are always lonely and they are always trying to love. So there's a lot that could go into that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this kind of final question the book leaves us. What is the human heart? What is distinctive in human nature? 
The second thing that I think it asks us is how are we to live with technology? And this is something that I think troubles Ishiguro when I looked at interviews with him. You know, he became famous for his kind of science fiction. Well, he became famous for many books, actually. Uh, before that, he became, he was notable for Remains of the Day. But one of the main things that he's been known for is, um, is Never Let Me Go, which is the science fiction um, novel. And um, in that, he began to explore questions of how technology was going to shape our lives, how it is shaping our lives. And he's talked about how over the last, because of that book, he's been in lots of conversations with people who are on the cutting edges of, of um, genetic editing and, and many different kind of technological advances that will shape, that are shaping and that will shape our lives. And I think one of the points of the, this book is literally asking us, how do we live with technology? The loneliness, the kind of achiness that you get with the ending of this book is that, um, that they leave this robot in the junkyard. And we might say, oh, that's terrible. How could they do that? But if you think about other pieces of technology, once they're past their use, do we keep them around with us like a pet? No, we discard them. So there's this literal question of how do we live with technology? And I think one of the things that he points out to us is that no matter how advanced we get these, these essential human questions about what it is to be a person, what it is to be good, what it is that happens to us when we die, those don't go away with technology. And so I think that this book invites us to think about this, the kind of dystopia that it's describing is not so far away. Um, and so I, I think the book is asking us, how do, we, um, how do we live with technology? What will that look like? How do we maintain our humanity? Um, how, do we, how do we think about what it is to be human in a world with technology like our ancestors could never have imagined? And I think the final thing that it does ask us or gives us room to ask ourselves is, is the sun kind? Now, one of the most important elements of this final chapter is the way that Clara's memories begin to kind of almost have these multiple layers. So that they're, it's almost like she's having these two sets of memories laid on top of each other, like a layer cake. And I think what's happening there is that she's seeing the healing of Josie alongside another healing. I think that at the core of this book, is not just the salvation of Josie physically, but the salvation of the mother spiritually. That as in that scene where the mother realizes that she's loved and then sun breaks over Josie and then she's healed. I think that there's these, these two kinds of loneliness are being healed by the sun. And Clara believes deep in her bones that as we had talked about at the very, very beginning, that the sun will always find a way to shine on you. So in that first opening um, chapter, we have that section where the boy AF kind of teases her for being too greedy. But then he says, don't worry, the sun always has a way to find you. And Clara, as she is, as she's living into her slow fade, has never lost faith that the sun is kind to her. And I think one of my favorite things about this book is the idea that if you created an artificial intelligence, one of the first things it would do would be to believe in a benevolent and good um, creator, some kind of deity. And I think that the book leaves us open to asking this question of, is there a figure like the sun, right? Is there something that gives pattern and order and beauty to our lives? Um, is there something that shapes the way that we see the world? Is there something undergirding and holding and nourishing us? And I think that what we are given to believe 
is that perhaps Clara is seeing something. She's not just projecting something, she's not just constructing a worldview, but that there's a possibility that she's seeing a reality that everyone else is missing. And so I think that we are left with the question of, is the sun kind? Is there such a thing as the sun? How is it nourishing and caring for us? I can't wait to hear all of your thoughts on this beautiful and plaintive book. Um, And I hope you'll engage on Twitter and Instagram and that it will be something that will stick with you as it has stuck with me. I think that reading it the second time over, it has, um, I think I liked it even better than the first time. So those are my questions that I leave leave you with, that the book left with me, which is, what is the human heart? And how do we live with technology? And is the sun really kind? Thank you for listening, and I hope you will tune in again soon. It's been a pleasure to read this book with you.